This morning marks the fourth week in our summer sermon series, uh, 15 Hymns Every Christian Should Know. And as you can tell this morning, we are focusing our attention on Christmas hymns. Uh, We've seen that hymns are an important part of our obedience to the scriptural command to teach and admonish one another. Along the way, we have found hymns which praise God the Father for His abundant power and wisdom, like, I sing the mighty power of God. And last, or, uh, we've also seen hymns that teach about our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who purchased our freedom from the bondage of sin by His own blood. Hymns like, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Last week, we considered hymns of Advent, which teach us to watch with patience for the Lord's coming according to the promise of Scripture. Hymns like, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. But the hymn that we're going to look at this morning is, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And it's one of the most recognizable and popular of all the Christmas hymns. Now, we've already sung some hymns this morning written by famous hymn writers. Hymns written by Isaac Watts, the father of English hymns. We sang Joy to the World. And hymns, Christmas carols written by Charles Wesley. Uh, We've actually spent a lot of time focusing on Wesley. Uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing and come the long expected Jesus were both written by Charles Wesley, as was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I said before that if you want a good devotion, uh, have a good devotional time this week, take a hymnal. Sit down and flip through it and find all the hymns by Charles Wesley. Just read them through beginning to end, verse by verse. And it will be a great time of devotion. It's an incredible truth. And so, we're going to look at this hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. It's very famous. It's very popular. It's very familiar. And I think it's entirely possible that we might sing this song without truly uh, thinking about what it means. I didn't have an opportunity to do this. I did think about it, but I didn't come to fruition. But I wanted to just do like a you know, man-on-the-street interview this week and go around and ask people, can you give me in one sentence, what is the song, Oh, Come All You Faithful, about? You know, put the microphone in their face. Let them answer. See what happens. Think about it for a second. Without thinking through all the words yourself or if you know them, just think about it for a second. What's the hymn about? Of course, we know what it's about. It's about Jesus, Right? I mean, isn't, isn't everything... Whoops, I don't want to go there yet. Isn't everything... Ah, oh, come on, don't do that. Where are we going here? Okay, there we go. Isn't everything in church about Jesus? Right? So, of course, oh, come on, faithful, it's about Jesus. Right. Well, it kind of reminds me of a story about a pastor who would invite the children of the church to come uh, to the front during the service so he could share an object lesson with them. And on this particular Sunday... Uh, this pastor was using squirrels to teach the children about industry and preparation. And so he, he started by saying, I'm going to describe something and I want you to raise your hand when you know what it is. The children all nodded eagerly. The pastor said, this, this thing lives in trees. And he paused. It eats nuts. And he paused. No hands went up. And it's gray. He paused. It has a, a long bushy tail. Another pause. The children were looking at each other, but no hands went up. And it jumps from branch to branch. Pause. And chatters and flips its tail when it gets excited. Pause. 
Finally, one little boy tentatively raised his hand. The pastor breathed a sigh of relief and called on him. Well, the boy said, I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) And as I thought about singing Christmas carols in June, I thought about how easy it is for the most jaw-dropping, unbelievable, improbable, unexplainable, and miraculous event in all of history to become just another piece of the furniture in our lives. The thought, the thought that the very God whose mighty power made the mountains rise, spread the flowing seas abroad, and built the lofty skies, would consider it a joy to stoop low enough to be called a man that the same desire of all nations would set aside the majesty and glory with which He has been clothed since before time began to bear my shame. We sing, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, Come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold Him, born the King of angels. O come, let us adore Him. O come, let us adore Him. O come, let us adore Him. Christ the Lord. What are we singing? Did you catch the key phrase? It's the first verse. It's the most familiar. It's everything we know. But did you catch it? Come and behold Him, born the King of angels. Not just born a human king. Oh, that, that happens routinely, right? A child is born who would be king. That happens in kingdoms and nations all over the world and all throughout history. No, no, no. Not a child who would be the king of a nation The child was born who was the king of the angels. There's only one. There's only one. And that king is never succeeded by another. There's only one. You see, that's the truth of this hymn, and yet we can sing right over it and miss it. You may have never heard the second verse. It's not included in our hymnals. But I like the second verse. Here's how it goes. You've got it on the screen here. God of God... And light of light begotten, lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore Him. O come, let us adore Him. O come, let us adore Him. Christ the Lord. Aren't you glad? That's Glad's not nearly a strong enough word. Doesn't it absolutely stun you to think that Jesus Christ, who is begotten, God of God and light of light, in other words, He's the very same essence as the Father Himself. 
He did not despise Mary's womb. How low he stooped just to get down to our level. There's quite a bit of humility there, isn't there? Maybe that's why we don't think about it very much. Most of the time we think about ourselves and how exalted we are and how intelligent and capable and strong we are. We don't think about how low, how lacking in honor and majesty and glory we are. And yet, the Christ did not despise Mary's womb. He stooped down to our level. Jesus is the very God Himself who was begotten, not created. That expression, by the way, really fascinating thing, that expression actually comes from one of the early church councils trying to define the, the essence of who Jesus Christ was in the early era of the church. Not created. Begotten is the word that the New Testament uses of Him. You see, we must understand this Christmas carol that we might take for granted conveys a profoundly important truth. Jesus Christ is the Eternal One. There never was a time when He was not. Do you understand that? There never was a time when He was not. He has always been. He was not created. If Jesus was created, then we, and we, if we believe that, then we're no different than the cults, all of which attack the, the deity and the person of Jesus Christ. No, Jesus was not created. He was begotten. The very God Himself Yet He came to earth for you. And so this morning, well, I've been thinking about this all week, but this morning I want you to let that sink in. And I want you to think about and, and, and evaluate whether that message has maybe become somewhat dull in your heart and somewhat dull in your mouth. In verse 3 of this Christmas carol, we sing about the angels. The very angels who lifted their voices to give glory to God in the highest on the night when Jesus was born. And then in verse 4, we greet the Lord ourselves. Offering our own worship to Him, like that of the angels, to the Word of the Father. That's how it's put in this hymn who has now appeared in flesh. I wonder, shouldn't this hymn stir our hearts with gratitude and wonder and praise every time we hear it? Does it? I'd like to turn this morning to a passage of Scripture which is also very familiar. But I fear it may suffer the same kind of neglect as hymns like, O Come All Ye Faithful. 
Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and I'd like to look at verses 18 to 25, the very last portion of that chapter this morning. As we read these verses, there's three key phrases that, that, that kind of uh, jump out of this passage. And I'd like to take just a couple of minutes this morning to focus on each one of them and to see what these verses meant to Mary and Joseph and then see what these verses meant or what these phrases meant mean to us. And try to understand how did Mary and Joseph understand this? What was the impact on them? And then what does it mean for us? It's very simple, and I just want to lay this out for you. Three things here in this passage. Look at beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, the three things, I, you go, well, there's a lot of things in this passage. Yeah, but there's three phrases, three key phrases here that I want to bring out to you, that I want to point out and, and direct your attention to this morning. They're, they're, again, I'm, I'm telling you, this is not a deep, deep and profound message. I will say this, though. Um, I mean, maybe you're getting used to this now, but back on the table by Albert there, uh, there is, uh, I believe, a yellow piece of paper. Uh, and the top says, going deeper in God's Word. If you want a little bit more of the background of this passage and some of the things that kind of go into this, you can take a copy of that with you and, uh, and uh, give you something to study a little bit more on your own. But uh, the first phrase is this. The first of the key phrases is this. Of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Notice in verse 18, this is what Math, how Matthew, the author here, describes the situation. Right? He says that Mary, before she came together with Joseph, in other words, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And I didn't plan it this way, but actually if you read the pastor's pulse from this week, there's a little excerpt in there explaining a little bit more about this idea of betrothal and what that means okay, in their society, in their culture. Um, but, but Mary and Joseph were betrothed. That is, they were engaged to be married, but it's more than just the engagement we think of today. It was legally binding. They were considered man and wife. Notice, by the way, um, when the angel talks to Joseph uh, in verse uh, 20, he calls her, Mary, your wife. Okay. So they were considered legally married. However, they had not consummated the marriage by coming together physically. Okay? That was the thing that they were waiting for. The celebration of the marriage and then their physical union. That was the only thing awaiting. Everything else was done. Legally, it was all together. Everything was in order. 
Okay? And so they're betrothed. They're preparing for their wedding. And what happens? Matthew tells us that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That expression of the Holy Spirit is key. Matthew, that's his um, way of explaining this to us. Understand, obviously we, we understand Matthew was writing this under the direction of the Holy Spirit himself. This was divinely inspired. But Matthew wrote this. So this is his kind of explanation. Mary's child was of the Holy Spirit. But then look at verse 20, uh, because the, the angel says this as well, right? To Joseph. The end of verse 20. For that which is conceived in her, that is in Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. So twice in this passage, this phrase, of the Holy Spirit, is used. Now what's so significant about that? We ask the question, and for those kids who are in here who have your bullets and your notes there, you can fill this on your notes. I'm going to, going to answer questions for you. What did this mean to Mary and Joseph? To tell them that this child that Mary was carrying was of the Holy Spirit. Well, let me give it to you here. The first thing is this, that both Mary's pregnancy and her child were miracles from God. This is not a, what we call a normal pregnancy. It's not a normal child. There's something extraordinary going on here. When, when he says this is of the Holy Spirit, that tells us right away, this is not the everyday experience that people all over the world experience. Many of you have had that experience of finding out that you are expecting a child. And it's exciting. And it's sometimes a mixture of scary and exciting and joyous and, you know, all over the place emotionally. But it's normal, right? It is. It's kind of a normal part of life for many people. This one, we're told right off the bat, this child, Mary, you're, you're expecting, but Mary, this is not normal. God did something special. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's miraculous. Okay. Interestingly enough, in this same chapter, earlier in the chapter, Matthew has just gone through the genealogy linking Abraham to Joseph, okay. Mary's betrothed husband. It's interesting because he goes through all of these verses to link Abraham through David, the king, right? Down to Joseph. And what does it show? It shows that Joseph is rightfully an heir to the throne. Right? As a descendant of King David, he is an heir to the throne. And then, in verse 18, by telling us that this child is of the Holy Spirit, it's like, it's like he's saying, okay, he's got the genealogy of Joseph, but guess what? It's not Joseph's kid. <laughs> this child is not from Joseph. This child doesn't have a human father because this child is different, miraculous. Something going on here. We don't have time to, to analyze the book of Matthew, but I find it fascinating because you have the genealogy of Joseph in the very next verse it says, oh, by the way, Joseph's not the father. Well, what good does the genealogy of Joseph do us then? Well, because Joseph essentially becomes the adopted father. 
Now we can go to the book of Luke. We won't do that. And you could trace another genealogy, that genealogy of Mary. Also tracing Mary back to David. Jesus rightfully had claim on the throne. But interestingly enough here, through Joseph, yes, Joseph rightfully has a claim to the throne. And Jesus is the firstborn son in that family. But he's not of Joseph biologically. He's of the Holy Spirit. This is miraculous. So, we understand right off the bat, this tells us that this baby, this thing, is a miracle from God. It's something God did, the Holy Spirit did. But there's something else we learn from this. Not only is it a miracle, but it's also a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, now Matthew is going to make this very clear um, down in verse 22 and 23. He says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14. This is a specific fulfillment. Matthew tells us this. Matthew says, this circumstance, Mary being, uh, being betrothed to Joseph, but still being a virgin. Mary, her pregnancy of the Holy Spirit is miraculous, and it is a fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah. That's pretty spectacular. So Mary and Joseph are listening to the angel. And I guarantee you, you know, we we tend to think that people uh, who lived in ancient times, and we'll call this ancient times, we tend to think that they were kind of simple, you know. They didn't really know a lot, and they were kind of simple people. I would suggest to you that Mary and Joseph probably had memorized large portions of the Old Testament. Joseph had probably memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament in Hebrew. If he was a faithful Jewish man, and I believe he was. And if you want to know about Mary's theological training, a really good reading is to go to Luke when Mary uh, sings or prays to God. In Luke, I want to say it's Luke chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter, they call it the Magnificat. But it's Mary singing and praising God. And you read that, and I'm telling you, that would put most, uh, put a, a number of theological scholars today to shame. Because okay. a 16 to 18 year old girl could probably outdo them here. She knew the scriptures. Joseph knew the scriptures. I guarantee you, they knew Isaiah 7:14, So that when they heard this, they knew it. They knew what this was. They knew this was a fulfillment of prophecy. They knew that 700 years before, 700 years, you get that? Go back 700 years and where are we at? Columbus hasn't even discovered the new world yet. Okay? Printing press hasn't been invented. You want to read a book, it's got to be hand copied. (laughs) All right? I mean, we're just talking about it's, it's not even it, it's just such a different thing. 700 years earlier this was prophesied by Isaiah. And here are Mary and Joseph young in a time of great turmoil in their lives. And they receive this message. Mary's pregnant. And this child is a miracle. And this child is the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy. Absolutely stunning. And we hear it so often. 
We hear it so often in church. We read it. We see it. And it might be, if we're not careful, it might become just another thing that we hear all the time. Well, the question then is, what does it mean to us? If it meant this to Mary and Joseph, it gives them this perspective. What about us? How do we understand this today? What does it mean to us? Well, I would submit to you two things that this expression, if, if, if Mary's child is of the Holy Spirit, it means two things to us. The first is this, that God works out His plan on the earth in His time. Did you realize that God was and is directly involved in the affairs of men? It's easy for us to forget that because God is a spirit and He's invisible. We don't see God working all the time. The other reason it's hard for us to understand that is because God's plan and how He works is not always known to us. We don't know what God is doing and why He's working the way He does. We don't have the big picture. So we don't know what God is doing in our country today. In our state. In our county. In our city. In our church. In our home. Sometimes in our own heart. In our own life. We can't even always see and understand what God is doing. We don't have that picture. He doesn't let us in on that knowledge. He doesn't tell us, hey, um, Greg, get ready because this is what I'm about to do to you. It doesn't work that way. Read the book of Job. God never, never told Job what he was about. Never. You understand that? Read the book of Job. 42 chapters. Job wants to know why, and God never answers why. Job's curious. And he asks, he challenges and says, I want to have a face-to-face with God. And when he comes face-to-face with God, he says, I don't have any questions to ask. (laughs) I don't even want to ask. I'm afraid to know. No, God never explains it to him. We know more about it because it's in Scripture, but Job didn't know. God doesn't explain it. Didn't do it to us either. These things God is doing. He's working in our life. He's working all around us all the time. He's not an isolated or an uncaring force. He's not impotent. He's not, he's not you know, it's not like God kind of started this whole thing, you know, the human race and earth, and then it somehow got out of control. And he goes, I don't know what to do. And he's kind of, you know, um, is, it, is it Orson Welles who said that, maybe it was him, said that God is like the, the director and the, the play, the, the, the play has all gone awry, the actors have forgotten their script and the, the stage has caught fire and the director's running around back in, in the back throwing his hands in the air, doesn't know what to do. That's God. That's not, that's not the way it is. God is not unable to influence and control events of history. We just need to understand God works on His timetable and in His way, in His plan. That's what He was doing. So when He comes to Mary and Joseph and He says, listen, hey, Mary is going, what do I do? And Joseph going, here I trusted Mary. What do I do now? Their lives are in turmoil. And yet God comes and says, listen, this is a part of my plan. Be patient and trust me. I prophesied about this. And all I'm doing is I'm intervening like I always do, working out my plan. But this is my time. I didn't do it 700 years ago because it wasn't time. Now is my time. It's my plan. I'm doing it this way. That's what God does. 
And so we understand God works out His plan on the earth, but He does it in His timetable. But there's a second thing we also learn here, and that is Jesus is a man. But He's unlike any man before, born before or since. He is a man. I mean, He's born to Mary here. The, the, the fact that this is a child of the Holy Ghost, it's still a child. He's still being born a child. It's not some sort of monster, some sort of weird thing. You know, Mary's going to go through the pregnancy and she's going to go through a, a, a delivery and she's going to give birth. And this baby is going to be born and he's going to be like other human babies. He's going to need milk. He's going to need care. He's going to need uh, to be cleaned and clothed and protected and taught and trained and all of the things that a human child needs. He's a man. But there's something unique about him. He's different. No man who was ever born before or ever born since is like him. Because the Holy Spirit, he's of the Holy Spirit here. This is why we can say that Jesus, though he was born a man, was born without sin. Don't ask me to explain it. I wish I could. <laughs> no one really can. I mean, we can... We can say what Scripture says, but it's hard for us to really get our minds wrapped around this. How can He possibly be born as a man and yet somehow not have a sin nature? And then people have said, oh, it's because, it's because sin is passed on by the fathers. And if the father's not involved, then there's no sin. Well, I, listen, that, that's, that's not what Scripture's teaching here. The Holy Spirit did a miracle here. That's why Jesus is born without sin. I don't know exactly how that works. I just know that, that because Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit, this child is born without sin. So that's important. Second expression. Second expression is the angel explains to Joseph in verse 21. Not only is this child of the Holy Spirit, but he says, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Now what's the big deal about that? I mean, first of all, that seems kind of strange anyways, because most of the time, uh, you know, when a baby's born, it's up to the parents to pick a name, right? But here the angel tells Joseph, no, you're going to call his name Jesus. Well, he explains to him at the end of verse 21 why he's going to call his name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. This name Jesus is very significant. It means Yahweh saves. The very name of Jesus directs us to God as the Savior. You're going to name Him Jesus. Why? He's going to save His people from their sins. But what does this mean to Mary and Joseph? How did they react to this? What did this signify to them? Well, first of all, it tells them that this is the Son or their son, rather, was the Messiah that the Jews had hoped for. We talked about this last week. What is Advent all about? It's that looking forward to the, the coming of the Messiah, the, the Chosen One. And the Jews had been looking forward to their coming. I mean, how long have, they been looking, how long have people been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah? Well, you can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, and God told Eve that one of her descendants, her seed, would come. One who would crush the serpent's head and 
bruise his heel, right? She talked about the, the, the prophecy talked about that. Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy of the Messiah who would come, the Savior who would come. All the way back, the very beginning of history, and from then on, been looking forward to this one to come. Mary and Joseph hear this. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to save his people. Finally. Finally, the Messiah has come. We've waited. Mankind has waited for thousands of years. And finally, the one who was promised is coming. And Mary, just Can you imagine as the truth of that sinks in that the one in Mary's womb is the one Savior, Messiah. And so they had hoped for him. No doubt Mary and Joseph had prayed that the Messiah would come. And here he was in Mary's womb. But that's not all the other thing that we understand here. (coughs) God was going to buy his people's freedom. God was going to buy his people's freedom. And, and, and I don't mean this in a general sense. Obviously, the, the Scriptures promised that God was going to free His people from their sins. But what I mean is that Mary and Joseph all of a sudden realized it's going to happen now. It's going to happen in our generation. This child who's come will save His people. Will purchase their freedom. This is the hope. And they see it. I said we don't usually get to see God's plan in action. We don't usually get to know exactly what God is doing. Well, they did get a little glimpse here. They could realize that with the birth of this child, God was preparing in that generation to save His people from their sins. And so Mary and Joseph could understand this truth. You shall call His name Jesus. He's the Savior. He's going to buy His people's freedom. But what does it mean to us? Well, again, we understand this truth. Jesus, this child who's born, is born for one purpose. And one purpose only. And that is to die for us. He was born to die. And so we understand from the very beginning, from the time that the angel instructs Joseph to take Mary as his wife, Jesus is going to die. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how does a lamb take away sin? By shedding its blood. He was born for this purpose so that He could die. This is the overarching purpose of Jesus' life. This was the single thought which compelled Him His death and our subsequent salvation are not an accident of history. They're simply part of the great eternal plan of God. This fact that this child is born would be called Jesus is proof of that. That the Savior, the one who was born, was born for that purpose so that He could die. But that's not all. The second thing is this. Our salvation doesn't come from us. 
Our salvation doesn't come from us. It comes from God. God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. We can't. We couldn't. And for that reason, we needed a Savior. We needed Jesus. We needed God who saves to come and do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. So understand this morning, our salvation can never come from us. It comes from God. And so we have those two phrases of the Holy Spirit. Sets Jesus apart from any other man. You should call His name Jesus. And understand He's the Savior, the Messiah, the one that's hoped for and longed for, who will save from sin. But there's a third expression. Maybe you caught it there. It's in that quotation from Isaiah in verse 23. They shall call His name Emmanuel. Which is translated... God with us. Now, like I said before, if you want more details on that translation or on that translation, on the quotation from Isaiah, pick up a copy of that going deeper. That has a little bit more information about that there. I didn't want to go back to Isaiah today and look at that with you, but you can study that out a little more. This phrase, Matthew quotes from Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. What does this mean to Mary and Joseph? Emmanuel. Well, the first thing that it means to them is that God would come to earth through them. And I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm including Joseph in this, even though Joseph didn't have any direct role in this. But God was coming to earth. And He was going to be in their home. In their family. He was going to be their son. <laughs> you want a daunting task as a parent. You're going to have the Creator. The Almighty God of the universe. And He's going to be your child. And you're going to take care of Him. And you're going to teach Him. And you're going to be faithful as a parent to teach him the biblical truth and teach him wisdom. And you're going to do what a parent should do. Please don't misunderstand. I, I, I'm sure that, that parenting Jesus was easier than parenting other children because Jesus wasn't a sinner. But it didn't absolve Mary and Joseph of the responsibility they had as parents. They still had to parent him. They still had to instruct him. They still had to teach him and train him. They had to direct Him. They had to be examples for Him of godliness and of wisdom and of character and integrity. Because that's their role as parents. That doesn't reflect any sort of uh, deficit in Jesus. Okay. But this is the situation. God was going to come to earth and it was going to be through them in their home, in their family, through Mary's body. God was coming to earth. What a privilege. What a privilege. God was going to walk amongst His people and Mary and her womb was going to be the means by which that happened. The second thing here that this tells us and told Mary and Joseph is that God would keep His promises. We've already seen this, but I already mentioned this before. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. But if God is fulfilling His prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 in the birth of Jesus Christ, what does that tell us about all the other things that God has promised? If God keeps this promise 700 years after the fact, then what does that tell us about the other promises of God? 
Maybe even other promises that he still has not yet kept and not yet fulfilled. Doesn't it tell us that we can trust that he will keep his promise? That he will follow through on his word? God had not forgotten the Jews. Remember last week in, in, the, in the book Haggai, we saw that, that it, it kind of appeared like God had forgotten his people because he had driven them away and they'd gone to captivity. And he brought them back and they were surrounded by enemies and they were under foreign control and oppression. And here we are several hundred, now 500 years after that, and they're still under foreign oppression. The Roman government now is over, is in charge of their land and has control of them. But God had not forgotten them. He promised it. And though maybe it seemed as if he'd forgotten, you know, 700 years is a long time to wait. Okay. He hadn't forgotten. He would keep his promise. He did. Okay. And that's an important thing for Mary and Joseph to understand. But what about us? How does this teach us? What does this teach us? Well, um, let me try and explain this as clearly as I can. God has become one of us. God has become one of us. And I'm not talking about somehow bringing God down to our level so that He ceases to be God. Okay? That's a perversion of this idea that, that some people have gotten today. Okay? That somehow Jesus was just like us and He was not God really. That's not what I'm talking about. God became one of us. He shared all of our human limitations and our human frailty. You do understand that even apart from sin, we are limited. We are frail. We are weak. And God chose to take on Himself our weakness, our frailty, our limitation. Not our sin. He didn't enter into our sinfulness, but God did become one of us. A man. A human being. Fully man. This is the thing that just blows your mind when you think about Jesus Christ. How is it possible? How is it possible that He could be fully God and fully man? If He was a man, didn't that mean He had to give up some of His Godness? No! If He was God, didn't that mean He couldn't really be a man? No! But I don't know how it works. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay, Nobody does. I mean, this is one of those incredible mysteries. I think, I just think for all of eternity in heaven, this is something that will still puzzle us. Oh, we'll have a much better grasp of the truth than we do now, but I don't think we'll ever completely figure this one out. This is something that is just a mystery of God. Something that only an infinite God can do. And you and I as simple, limited human beings, we're not there. <laughs> How can God be God and man at the same time? Wow. That's exactly what it is. He has become a human, a man, just like us. But then there's something else, and this is key. God Himself has saved us from sin. It's not just a potential you know, I'm not just saying that, that God potentially could save people. No, God came to earth and He accomplished salvation. That's why Jesus on the cross could cry out, It is finished. Why? Because it's done. Salvation has been provided for. It has been accomplished. 
God Himself has saved us from sin. This is essential. The very fact that God became a man is essential to our hope of life in Him. Romans 5 tells us that, that in some way that Jesus gives life to all men in the same way that Adam gives death and sin and corruption to all of us. Christ stood as a representative before the Father and, and offered His own blood so that salvation could be provided. No man who was born a descendant of Adam could do so. That's why this whole concept here that God would become man of the Holy Spirit, you call His name Jesus, you call Him Emmanuel, God with us. This is an essential truth. If it is not true, then everything that we believe and everything that we hold to is worthless and empty. We have no hope. Lewis Berry Chafer in his book, True Evangelism, wrote about how God made provision for our sin. And I want to read this quote to you. I'll put it up on the screen too. It must ever be remembered that it was the judge who pronounced the death sentence who also in His great love bowed the heavens and came down from that throne, making bare His own bosom and receiving into His own breast the very death blow He had in righteousness imposed. Think about that. The God who rightly declared us guilty. As that death blow was preparing to fall, came down and stood in our place and took that blow on Himself. I don't know what else to say. Just thinking about that. It just... It really goes beyond words to explain it, to understand it, to express it. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, came to earth so He could take your sins and my sins on Himself. So He could identify Himself with us as a man. Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans tells us what we must do. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth or I'm sorry, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We sing the song, O come all ye faithful. Come and adore Him, Christ the Lord. Have you sung that song before? I'm sure you have. But the real question is, have you come to Him? Have you come to Him to adore Him as Christ the Lord. This means that we must humble ourselves and acknowledge that Jesus truly is our rightful Master because He is our only Savior. And so this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never come to Him, as we sing about in this carol, we're going to sing it in a minute, would you do that today? Would you come to Him? Would you come to Him and acknowledge Him as the rightful Lord because He's your only Savior and your only hope? 
Would you cry out to Him for forgiveness and trust in Him to save you? And for those of us who've already received salvation through faith in Christ, the question remains, has the miracle of Emmanuel, God with us, become common? Has it become boring even in our hearts and our minds? When we sing songs about Jesus coming to earth as a man, they should fill our hearts with wonder. They should cause us to lift up our voice and loudly praise God. The commentator Michael Wilkins puts it this way, and I'll close with this quote. It is only this God-man who can save people from their sins which should cause them to pause in unending gratitude and to worship Him as Jesus, God saves, and Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray.